The following program has what are called four-letter words, though in this case, there may be eight letters and possibly a seven-letter adjectival verb. It's Thursday, May 12th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Senate yesterday voted on what Democratic Majority Leader Charles Schumer called a vote designed to show Americans, quote, where every single U.S. senator stands. The results of this vote were said to be doomed because there was no way for the 50 Democrats plus the vice president to override the Republican senator's veto. But then a surprising thing happened. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. That is right. The vote to preserve abortion rights failed outright. Which is different from past votes the chamber has taken before, like on the For the People Voting Act, which was doomed to fail without Republican support. The results of that. The yeas are 50. The nays are 50. The motion is not agreed to. And then there was the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Chuck Schumer explains why voting on that, doomed to fail, though it was said to be, was really important. So we know it's an uphill fight. But whenever this chamber confronts a question this important, one so vital to our country, you don't slide it off the table and say, never mind. You don't say, we're not going to deal with this issue head on. Senator's job is to vote and to vote on the most important issues facing us and vote we will. And vote they did. The result brought to you by Kamala Harris. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. The motion is not agreed to. On the biggest issues facing Americans, Chuck Schumer has a consistent strategy. Take a vote that's doomed to fail, watch it fail, and then be upset. What else can you do? I don't know, something? Maybe something other than going through with the depressing spectacle of a formal failure and a poor bummed out Kamala Harris? In times like this, I console myself with a news quiz. Come along. It's time for everyone's favorite game show, Which Destined to Fail Vote Did This Come From? Here's your host, Mike Pesca. Okay. Here's Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. And there is a challenge in this chamber and this country to explain and articulate briefly why this is such an important moment and why it justifies in a tension between two of my core principles, one of which is making sure that we work across the aisle and find bipartisan solutions as much as possible, and the other that we protect foundational principles which doomed to fail vote was that? Was it the John Lewis voting rights bill? Was it the abortion bill? Was it the For the People Act? If you said the John Lewis voting rights bill, you win. Or if you're the Democrats, plus Lisa Murkowski on that one, you fail to invoke cloture. All right, here's another one. This is Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. So important to our families and crucial to the future of our country. Which vote was that from? Also, the John Lewis voting rights bill. Kind of a curveball. You didn't expect me to go back to that desiccated well more than once, huh? Now we get to the Schumer-only round. Dollar values are doubled in the Schumer round. Which doomed vote was this from? So when we say that today's vote is one of the most important we've taken in decades, 
when we say it's not an abstract or theoretical exercise, when we say that the consequences would be real and immediate and far-reaching, it is the truth. Which was that? Don't answer until you hear this. And we are going to keep pushing. We are going to keep working. We are going to keep fighting. Long after today. Because the issue is so important to all of us. Okay. Which were those? We got John Lewis, we got abortion for the people. Maybe it was the police reform bill that was doomed to fail also. Gonna throw that one out there, gotta guess. Okay, here's the reveal. The first one was yesterday's abortion doomed to fail vote, and the second one was the John Lewis voting rights doomed to fail vote. Thanks for playing, and as all the senators well know, you don't get a parting gift, you don't get a copy of the home game, you don't get a consolation prize, but still, join me next time on the next edition of The Price is Righteousness. On the show today, I spiel about plagiarism, plagiarism to end all plagiarism, except it actually perpetrated more plagiarism. But first, David Gergen has served Presidents Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton, then went on to a career in journalism as an editor with U.S. News and a contributor to CNN. He's out with a new book looking at the next generation of leaders who he has been minting as the founder for the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made, author David Gergen, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
When Richard Nixon resigned, think about the images of that, perhaps up to that point, the lowest moment for leadership in American history. His four, two on each hand, fingered salute, thanking the staff, exiting in Marine One, which quickly stopped becoming Marine One as he was no longer president. But who wrote the resignation letter? You ever think of that? The answer is my next guest. It's David Gergen. I mean, it's a big, big, big job. It was a short letter and it needed to be, but it just exemplifies the fact that there is perhaps no better chronicler of American leadership in terms of being exposed to moments of leadership than David Gergen, advisor to four presidents. His new book is called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And Gergen was there in the crafting of many of these leaders. Thanks for joining me, Dave. David. Mike, listen, th thank you. I appreciate that. I was I was actually there when Richard Nixon resigned, and he gave a speech on television to announce his intentions. And then a few minutes after he stopped talking, I got a, my phone rang, and it was Al Haig, who was our chief of staff at the time. And uh, he said, David, we forgot one thing. And I said, what's that, Al? And he said, w we need a resignation letter. I said, well, I really look forward to uh, reading it. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. You got to write the damn thing. <laughs> so I said, well, how, how do I, uh, how, what do I, how should I address it? I, you know, to um, Speaker of the House or the Leader of the Senate, uh, Secretary of State, God, you know, to whom do I address it? And uh, the, and Hal said, oh, you figured it out. Just just talk to the lawyers. So I paddled down the hall. I I had an office about three doors away, four doors away from our general counsel. And so I went in looking for him, and then they told me, I'm sorry, he's not available. John Dean is actually in jail. So, <laughs> so then I went to our deputy general counsel, Fred Fielding, who wonderful man, uh, who was, and we sat down and wrote it together. It's a one sentence. We decided not to make it with a lot of frills. Concision of communication, extremely important in that moment. Right. It was nothing about, you know, we're sorry, but the dog pooped on the rug. and. You know, we made it one sentence. I hereby resign, President of the United States, effective immediately. Yeah. Hangs in the yeah. National Archives. It's uh, it's a literally unique moment in epistolary history. No president had ever written that letter before or has since. Maybe. Thank goodness. Maybe. Well, thank goodness. Maybe to our detriment at a certain point. The, the system of checks and balances in the country worked. You know, as well as one could have been expected. In my judgment, if you look back, the Senate of the United States actually did a good job. And there were Republicans as well as Democrats who went like Barry Goldwater, who went down and told Nixon, you got to go. You don't have the votes. You, you just need to resign. The judiciary, you know, Judge Sirica, if you'll recall him, he was a very straight, straight arrow in this thing. He didn't tilt it one way or the other. And that I thought he did. Even the press. I, you know, the Washington Post was a great enemy of the Nixon administration for much of the time. But I thought in the end, the Washington Post got the story right and we lied to people at the White House. We, mm -hmm. you know, to tell you the truth, I thought the cover up worked better in the White House than anywhere else. Those of us who worked there with the White House, we were told every day, this is BS. <clears throat> this is just Katie Graham just trying to take us down. Don't pay any attention to it. We're right. They're wrong. Turned out the other way around. Okay, so I want to ask a few questions based on that. One is, and this ties into the idea of leadership, was it moments of leaders of individual men or women at the moment standing up and taking a, 
the right stance to turn the tide? Or was it more the background condition of back then American politics was susceptible to, well, you could say persuasion, you could say facts. It probably, a lot of it was just baked into the fact that we weren't so polarized and we, and the parties actually weren't so ideologically polarized. So what was it? Great moment in leadership or great moment in the fundamentals of the system shining through? It, it's, as in so many instances of leadership, it's, it's both. It's the context. You know, how, how, how far can you go? I mean, Jim Baker, when he was chief of staff, used to divide, you know, the various kind of legislative goals as beyond hope, easy, uh, or tough but doable. And the ones that you bond beyond hope, you just didn't do. And the ones that were easy, you, you push down into the bureaucracy and you go, guys go solve this. We don't need to do it at the White House. The ones you should be worrying about are, and at the White House are the tough but doable. Um, and getting, getting Nixon out of there was tough but doable. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we had as a staff before that, people would ask me, should I leave? This looks terrible. I want to go. And you, you know, I, you could tell them, okay, it's okay. You ought to get slip out of here to preserve your family. But um, I told them in the end, when when the tapes came out, don't leave. It's too late. You know, it's only rats leaving a sinking ship. You need to go down with the ship. And I frankly thought, uh, Mike, that those of us who were at the White House in staff positions and many people who were in cabinet positions, this we were finished in national public life. It turned out the, the country was much more forgiving. To, to people who had been who hadn't done anything wrong, you know, mm-hmm. there, there were a group of people at the center who were the the corrupt ones, but the most people who worked there were not. I had several friends who went to jail, and the, and the mistake they made was to do the things that were asked of them by Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Yeah. So let me ask you, as a person who was lied to and to a large extent believed the lie because you were in an echo chamber there. Well, I was also how naive. Does, you were young. Yeah, I was young. Yeah. I'd yeah, never seen yeah. anything like that. I never knew anybody went to jail. You know, I, I, Mike, I didn't know Bob Woodward. We went to school about, we were one year apart in school. I, I, don't, I was a back channel to, to Woodward with Nixon's approval. And we used to talk about, we've never seen anything like this before. Both of us were thinking, are the pillars of you know, the, the, our republic going to come crumbling down? Where is this going to go? I mean, both of us, I on one side, believing that, you know, Haldeman Ehrlichman had a, had a case to make. Uh, and Woodward on a di- totally different side, but, you know, turned out to be right. Um, we, we, we both understood that we were playing with precious things in our democracy. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's, not given, it's not a given that democracy will survive. In the book, early on, you, you say we're at the worst crisis of your lifetime. In a word, what is that crisis? It's a crisis of governance. You know, um, uh, Michael Porter at the Harvard Business School did a big study of American competitiveness, and he came up with eight or nine things that we needed to do. But he said the single biggest thing in terms of unleashing the American economy um, was was uh, fixing our politics. So it's it's not a, it, and the polarization is is a drag on us, and it's um, I frankly think we need to get some younger blood in. We ha- we need to get people in who are. Uh, who have fresh vision, fresh idealism? They're not as they're they're not living the narrative of polarization and poison and enemies and all the rest. They're living a potentially living a different narrative, which is more hopeful. And you know, so from my point of view, uh, it's time for a change in the guard. It's it, it, you know that we need we need to pass the torch, as the phrase goes. 
Well, I get that from reading your book because it is clear to me that you take efforts to highlight younger people, Greta Thunberg and X Gonzalez, who is, she was named uh, Time Person of the Year when she was Emma Gonzalez from uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and AOC and in general, the Black Lives Matter movement. As I think about these younger leaders who lead with emotion and certainly uh, have gotten a lot of attention, there's something about the stoicism part that I think this new generation absolutely does not value and they're more sensitive and in touch with their emotions, and there's something to be said for that. But is it incompatible or at least hard to be a great leader if so often you don't have the stoic mindset, you know, like prisoners of war in the Hanoi Hilton that you profile? If so often you're saying, as AOC told the New York Times, I don't even know if I want to be in politics for the first six months of my term. I didn't know if I was going to run for re-election. She cited stress, violence, lack of support for her party. I mean, it's fine to go through trials of the soul, but do, in general, young leaders embody the necessary qualities that the great leaders in history have? Uh, Well, certainly not not everybody does. And these big new generations are coming up. Um, I think they're going to be on trial. I don't think we know for certain which way this is going to go yet. But I do think they bring more hope uh, to the table than we've seen in recent years. I, I, I came to Washington when the World War II generation was running the show. Either, and we had seven presidents in a row, from uh, John Kennedy through George H.W. Bush, who wore a military uniform. And that, that was in many, for most of them, that was the formative experience of their lives. And so when you had a, a Saltonstall from Massachusetts saluting a Polish kid from Brooklyn, you know, it changed the, the, uh, the dynamics of the country. People were very proud to be Americans. They were, they were very confident. We were a can-do people. Uh, and there, I think if you look back upon it, the Truman, Eisenhower, early or Kennedy, up through early, early Johnson, those were really good years for the country. You know, we did a lot. We put together a lot of things. We, were, we, we governed mostly from the center right, which is where I think the country tends to be on most of these issues. But there was a real sense that we're in this together. Uh, and, that, and that sense is, has, um, I think, sort of dribbled out. We just mm-hmm. sort of lost it over time. So the generation that really was impressive or big and had great influence coming out after the World War II generation were the baby boomers. They just have a very different philosophy. First of all, that generation was, was has been divided right from the get-go. You know, you had people who, one hand, like a Dr. Spock and everything, trying to persuade parents, you got to coddle your kid, you got to protect your kid, everything. And and there's some of the rest of us who are more traditional said, no, no, you need to challenge your kid. You, the kid needs to, to have to do some tough things. It needs to be, you know, a little hardiness in life is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. The younger people sometimes, you know, I, I must confess there are times I get driven to distraction. It's a little too precious. But overall, I, I tell you what, the people I'm really impressed with are the veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I think they're a really hardy group. You know, like I like Max Rose. Max Rose, you know, ran, won, lost, wants to come back. Uh, and they're just, they're, they're ter- some terrific people. And they could, they're starting to rebuild the center in American politics. And I have to say, I think some of these activists are mostly black women. Um, you know, I don't agree with all their politics. But I will tell you, in the long run, I think what their agenda is probably going to become much more central to with the way we live together than it is now. 
It's yeah. a little bit like the civil rights movement, and for a long time, you know, it was sort of seen as fringy, and then suddenly it became, or the gay movement, you know, it became, right. it became very much uh, mainstream politics. So I wonder this about leadership. Um, I understand the youth are the most impassioned and probably the least likely to compromise out of the gate. But I take your point and the lessons of Baker and others. Let's do three tranches. Let's define what we can't do and know what we can't do. Uh, how does that play into leadership? Because in as I read the book, very often there were these young idealistic leaders and they're not about to compromise. The Green New Deal is not at all about compromise. The Sunrise Movement isn't about compromise. And yet when we get change, it's often because of compromise. So is your theory of change that we need these impassioned young leaders not to compromise or that they should on occasion, take half a loaf instead of no loaf at all? Uh, I think over time they're going to come to, I'll take half a loaf, you know, the Reagan approach. I'll take a half a loaf today and I'll come back for the rest tomorrow. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Reagan people were seen as uh, rigid, you know, and, and ideological and, you know, backward looking and all the rest. Well, it turned out they're pretty damn good, you know, in the Reagan years. And in my judgment, I think Reagan... I'm more liberal than Reagan, but I had a lot of respect for him as a leader. What about his uh, declining later years? Did you see that? Did that affect his governing? Uh, I had a brother, an older brother, who was a psychiatrist who was on a commission that looked at Reagan's health. And um, they felt that it, he, it was the onset of dementia, but it, was, it wasn't quite as serious sometimes as people like to make it. I, I, I do think, Mike, looking ahead, that it's a mistake to have so many people in their late 70s and going on into their 80s running the country. I mm -hmm. mean, if you, you, you look at with the election we may well have just around the corner in 2024, we could have two men, Biden and, and Trump, opposing each other, both in their late 70s. Whoever gets elected will govern in his 80s. And yeah, I'm sorry, I just, I, I just turned it. I'm just turning 80. You lose a step. You know, you're not quite as sharp. And do we really want somebody with carrying around the nuclear, you know, package, uh, you know, whose judgment it may be impaired? I, I don't think so. I, I just think per se people who are 80, 81, 82 years old should not be president. I think so. But, you know, let's say Joe Biden gets the nomination and uh, the Republican choice is Dan Crenshaw, who is your student. Just that fact alone, I'm not going to I don't think I'm going to vote for Dan Crenshaw, even though I believe in everything you just said. I, I think we, it, it's obvious that we need to be moving toward more compromise and sort of working together. And I, that's what I'm hoping about. These veterans are coming back because, you know, many of them are taking a pledge to work across the aisle. And uh, they want to they want to bring a new politics in. It's not just AOC who's trying to change things. You know, there are people from the center center right uh, who who believe you know we definitely ought to be doing it. There are a lot of young people who don't know quite how to make an impact. They're still struggling with that. I, you know, I'm a personal believer in national service. Yeah, I, I think everybody ought to be encouraged to give a year back to your community um, or more a year or two. You know, rural people ought to be working in urban areas and urban people ought to be working in rural areas. Uh, and they ought to get they ought to get reductions in their student debt for the service. You know, I, I, I think it's strange to say, well, we'll just cancel the debt. And, and as if you don't have to do anything to earn that. It, it seems to me we're selling ourselves short.
So the last thing I'll ask you about is, and this is a, a concept that everyone who's contemplated leadership has thought about, does the moment make the man or the woman or the person? Does the moment make the person or is it the person that imposes his or her will on the moment? And here's, I'll just tell you what I've come to conclude. Often we ask this about Churchill's a great example of it, how the felt that he had passed his prime by the war. Um, whereas, you know, Lincoln met the moment. Maybe there were great other potential presidents who just drifted along in a time of relative peace. I think this distinction of the moment making the man is very important, specifically in presidential politics and with political leaders. But I've come to believe that there are certain personalities that no matter the moment will make their impact. But usually you can't do that if you are in an elected position. So to say it in summary form, does the moment make the man more so for presidents and politicians than other forms of leaders? That's my thesis, what do you think? Um, look, I, I, I do believe <clears throat> that the moment matters. It was true in March, April of 1940, Churchill was washed up. You know, people thought he was reckless, had gotten involved in a lot of trouble in the Dardanelles, shouldn't be entrusted with power. And then when the Nazis started, you know, rolling across Europe, suddenly Churchill was the man of the hour. You know, we would never have known about Abraham Lincoln had it not been for the war. I think he would have made a, a difference in Illinois, but I don't think he would have made a difference in the country. You know, Abigail Adams wrote a, a letter to her son, John Quincy, when he was a teenager, and, say, and basically arguing that great calamities call forth great statesmen. They, they bring to the fore people who are might not otherwise uh, be, be called upon. Uh, but what I think our task now is to call upon the, 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 the most uh, promising and the people who, frankly, share a patriotism about the country's future, to call upon these young people to get in the arena. You know, that Teddy Roosevelt quote is, is, is right. You know, the man in the arena, you know, is the one we should respect. David Gergen, advisor to four presidents, and since 1999 has been a professor of public service and founder and the director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. His book is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. A pleasure. I so enjoyed this. Thank you. And now the spiel. A writer named Jumi Bello had her book pulled for plagiarism. Then she wrote a long essay explaining what went wrong. It began, quote, my novel was going to come out this summer, a book deal years in the making. And then suddenly it wasn't. The reason is because I committed plagiarism. The essay written for LitHub landed her in trouble anew. And I know what you're thinking. It's because of the reason is because construction, which is a clear redundancy, and we teach our children not to do that. No, the literary world could, in fact, look the other way on that one. But there was a larger issue with the essay apologizing for plagiarism. It was plagiarized. In fact, it was plagiarized from a site called Plagiarism Today, 
which unlike sites like Russia Today or Knitting Today actually has an anti-plagiarism stance. The proprietor of that site, Jonathan Bailey, reviewed Bellow's essay and found that it actually plagiarized two of his works, one from Plagiarism Today and one from Plagiarism Eventually. No, the other was from a site called TurnItIn.com, where Bailey's title is listed as Plagiarism Consultant. If I were him, I'd actually have branded myself anti-plagiarism consultant. As a plagiarism consultant, I mean, what kind of advice can you offer? You know, just change the butts to however, and John Turturro, change that reference to Steve Buscemi, you should be fine. I mean, if you really want to escape detection, I'd go with mm, Ving Rhames and nevertheless. So plagiarism today wrote about the history of plagiarism using this phrase. Plagiarism, the act of taking another's work and passing it off as your own, has almost certainly been with us since the dawn of artwork and written language. Whereas Jumi Bello wrote, plagiarism has been with us since the birth of language and art. Plagiarism today, for as long as there have been art and artists, there have been people who have put their names to it incorrectly. Bello, for as long as there have been words to be read, there has been someone there copying the passages. And that counts as plagiarism today. At one point, it was more like pastiche or homage, or when Shakespeare did it to Christopher Marlowe, simply derogor. But you know, it's like I say, as long as there has been language or art, words to read, and the beguiling interplay of print upon the page, there has been that rough beast of plagiarism. Be the brute primitively aping the work of another, or as nimble as the copycat, slinking away without attribution. Bellow was also said to have plagiarized details of the origins of the phrase plagiarism. That accusation was put forth by the website Gawker. But really, how many ways are there to combine the facts and proper nouns of an 8 AD poet named Marshall calling another poet named Fidentinus a plagiarus, Latin for kidnapper? I followed a few plagiarism stories in my day, and they often include one or two undeniable ripoffs, and then mm, a flood of supposed similarities, which become kind of Rorschach tests that could be interpreted inculpatorily if the reader is so inclined. So putting aside Bellow's original plagiarism offense, which occasioned the essay in LitHub, the second plagiarism charge would seem to be a misdemeanor if it weren't directly on the subject about which you cannot pull a full fidentinus. But having read the full 4,500-word LitHub essay, I wasn't struck with outrage, more with sadness. Jumi Bello is not well. She mentions her mental illness 15 times. One reason she was given her book deal was that the novel was to be about her mental illness. Over the 4,500 words in the LitHub essay, Bellow plums, sifts, and refines all of her literary sins, and she clearly believes all of her personal failings. Bellow writes that it's, quote, ultimately about the loss of my integrity to my art, the loss of my authenticity. My art, my writing, is how I get at the truth about the world. To lose one's touch with one's integrity is to lose sight of the truth. This is a story about what led to the loss of my integrity, how I lost it in more senses than one. It goes on in that vein for a while. 
the surprise of getting a book deal, the pressure to actually deliver, the time she could have course corrected. Quote, every time I read it during the fall, the words blend together in a terrible blue of exhaustion and feelings from the episode I experienced in August when I had been off my antipsychotics. She develops an allergy to antipsychotic medication. She's hospitalized. She hears voices. She's hospitalized again. She writes, I walk to my car and imagine dousing myself in gasoline and setting myself alight. She sees spots on the wall and thinks they're moving. She utters phrases that her husband doesn't understand. I am not a psychiatrist, but I read into that essay hallucination, suicidal ideation, florid delusions, and disassociation. Bella reveals she got a big book advance based on 20 pages and her bio. She writes of that moment, quote, this is New York, capital of literature and culture, and they've said yes to me, black, mentally ill, inexperienced me. Bellow clearly is a person who can assemble phrases and build momentum on the page, but it goes off in odd directions, then circles back on itself and rambles, rambles, rambles. But I get it. She's fighting for her life on the page, and it's hard to know when to stop. In a more just world, or maybe, I don't know, Scandinavia, Jumi Bellow would have enough money, recurring theme of the essay, to not have to write her way to sufficient psychiatric care. It is odd and unjust that for all the dysfunction at play and on display, we have one charge that is unambiguous and that will decide Bellow's fate. Plagiarism. Doubly so. Or maybe to the second power, depending on how you calculate the transgression. She is a plagiarist and no longer a novelist. Plagiarism. That is the line, that is the transgression that can't be countenanced. Bellow crossed that line and transgressed again, and now she is being made to pay the price. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the show's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is special counsel to both President Gerald Ford and Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.